Oh, good evening. Let's take our Bibles, please, again, and turn to Matthew chapter 20 tonight. And we will be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That is, again, our text for our considerations. Matthew chapter 20, though, and we'll take the time to read by way of introduction tonight and to help us again to think through uh, these particular uh, matters. Again, it's been a joy to be here over the weekend. It's been good to, uh, to meet so many of you personally and to fellowship together. Uh, some of you are, are here for the first time this evening. We welcome you in the Lord's uh, name. Uh, it's not an easy situation because you're coming really at the very end of one sermon. I made the point this morning that the sermon began on Friday. It's been a, a sermon over Friday and this morning again tonight. Uh, but I do trust you'll follow along and that if you think there are ca- gaps in the information, well, they may well have been covered already this morning or on Friday evening. But I trust that we benefit to your, your soul and blessing uh, to your heart. We also do plan to have a time of sort of questions and answers in the prayer room at the close of tonight's uh, meeting. Uh, it was really to allow some of the men who may have questions regarding the diaconate to discuss those things, but it can certainly be open more broadly. If any of you want to fellowship and have some time of, of questions regarding the diaconate, or even more broadly uh, regarding our denomination, be very glad to have that time of fellowship uh, tonight. So that's after this meeting over in the, in the prayer meeting room here in the building. Thank you for your prayers for the work in Malvern. Uh, again, as our brother says, it is in, it's in Pennsylvania. It depends on the traffic. It's about 45 minutes drive west of Philadelphia and along the main line, as they talk about there. Uh, and so you have in Philadelphia, you've got a uh, again, a very difficult city, marked with much trouble at the present time. It's certainly the news uh, for the challenges faced there. And the religious makeup primarily, historically, was uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, but there are a great number of uh, very difficult circumstances in the city of Philadelphia. And you go across west and you come into a pretty affluent area, uh, an area of technology, uh, pharmaceutical industry also. Uh, and again, that's the area the church is in. It's an area of, of really quite significant affluence. And you know the rich, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. And there is much spiritual apathy. Outside that, going further west, you come to Lancashire County, well known, again in the U.S., for the Amish and Mennonite population there, the farmland, very beautiful countryside. And I certainly encourage you to come along and visit sometime, visit with us in, in Malvern, and then see some of the scenes. Uh, also the history in Philadelphia. And, of course, also the, uh, the farming land over in Lancaster County. So thank you for your prayers. Do pray for the work there. We certainly covet the prayers of God's people in our wider uh, presbytery. So let's read together from the verse number 20 of Matthew 20. And then we'll ask for God's blessing to rest upon us again this evening. So Matthew 20, verse number 20. The Word of God says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him and desiring a, gr- a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they say unto him, We are able. And he saith unto them, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. 
But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority among them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together, please, in a word of prayer. We need the Lord's help again as we come uh, to study the sacred scriptures this evening. Let's all pray. Almighty God and Father, we come humbly before Thee again tonight. And we're very thankful for Your help over the last number of services and for a sense of Your presence in the meeting. And help us, O God, tonight. We need help in the hearing and in the preaching of the Word. We pray for the anointing of the Spirit of God to gift and give help to the preacher and also to open the ears and the hearts of every hearer that the Word that is preached will be sown into their hearts and that we'll rejoice in the recognition that we've met with Thee tonight. Bless our souls, encourage our hearts, and bless the work of God in this place for the honor and glory of Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We made mention on Friday evening that this term, the deacon, or the verb to deacon, it's not a real word, don't worry about that, but this idea of the, the verbal use of to serve is used very broadly in the New Testament, and likely several different ways in which it is used, but the consistent sense has the idea of active service. It is taking the role of one who will minister to the needs of others. Those needs, again, may vary, but it has that sense of ministering to others. And it is, I say, used broadly. It's used of Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verse 6, regarding his work as a, as a Christian minister. The Christian minister is a deacon. They are a servant in the spiritual realm. But significantly, this idea of being a deacon is taken by our Lord himself regarding his own ministry. And that is here in the verse number 28 of Matthew chapter 20. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And is the verbal form of this word for or deacon. To minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Really, our Lord Jesus is the ultimate deacon. He is the ultimate prototype for diaconal service. But in his example, he encourages again in the remembrance that every single one of Christ's disciples are to be deacons, in a sense. And I said there's a breadth of understanding here. 1 Timothy 3 makes it clear that churches must appoint particular men to serve in the office of deacon. But what their role is, is essentially to ensure that every member functions in a diaconal sense in the work of God's, that each and every member is involved in ministry for the glory of God's. 
Now, I'm not confusing things here. Please understand. I'm not suggesting for a second that every man becomes a deacon, or indeed every woman also becomes a deacon. That's not the point. There is a particular office in view. But what we've seen over the last number of days is that the role of the deacon is to ensure that the church does what it's meant to do. And so they are, if you like, the leaders, the active leaders in the service of the church. Because when Christ comes to minister, he's making the point to the disciples, my ministry is a prototype of your ministry. You see, the issue here in Matthew chapter 20 is that the two sons of Zebedee are seeking to exalt themselves. They want these chief seats. The ten who hear this, verse number 24, are prickled and moved with indignation against the two brethren. You see, whenever there is a desire to exalt self in the work of God, that desire to exalt self brings division and controversy. Unity in the church of Jesus Christ is only found in the pathway of humility. And Christ is making that point in this particular passage. Whoever will be chief, verse number 27, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to minister unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And when we think about the Christian message, again, in a Bible-believing church, every aspect of the church is Christ-centered. And that is not only that Christ is the example as he is here, but also that Christ in his ministry gives the power and the ability for the newborn Christian to function as a Christian. Christ shows the way and by his grace on the cross provides the means and the grace whereby we can serve in the church of Christ. He is our great deacon. You see, when you think of the Lord Jesus, we of course know him as the fulfillment of the servant of Jehovah. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 52, these references to a suffering servant coming for the good of others, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. He is a servant. And his servants brings a challenge and a rebuke to all of us in the Lord's work. His service is selfless. We get that idea from Philippians chapter 2. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It was his by right, and yet selflessly he takes upon himself the form of a servant, and he comes and is obedient and does the will of the Father for your redemption, for your salvation. His service is selfless. It is marked by humility. And in Philippians chapter 2, that very doctrine is used in the means of seeking to promote a sacrificial unity in the work of God's Christian service in the power and in the pattern of Christ. You see, please turn across briefly to Luke chapter 22. Because in Luke's account of the upper room, Luke again takes this term deacon and draws our attention to it regarding our Savior. Luke 22, verse number 27. For whither is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, 
but I am among you as he that serveth. And if you just use your eyes right now and you glance back over these verses, you'll see the parallel reference to what we've seen in Matthew chapter 20. The Lord comes as a selfless servant. The role of the deacon and the office of the deacon ought not to be a desire for prominence or promotion in the work of God. It ought to be a recognition prayerfully before God of a calling to service, to set aside self for the good of the work of God and the glory of Christ. But as Christ's service is selfless, so it is also willing. Again, back in Matthew 20, he makes the point that he gives his life a ransom for many. The Lord is not reluctant to take the role of the deacon to himself. He does not need to be cajoled and persuaded. Prophetically in the Psalm 40, he says, I delight to do thy will. And Hebrews 10 fulfills that in the person of Jesus. And so we see in the Psalm 40 the willingness of the God-man to come and to serve humbly for the well-being of others. And so he gives his life willingly. We see him in the garden. Not my will, but thine be done. Consistently we see our Savior as one who is determined to do the will of the Father for the benefit of the people of God. You see how challenging this example is? But not just for men who may serve as deacons, but for all of us in the work of God. But no less for those who serve as deacons. One man, William Blackie, says this, The earthly work of our blessed Lord was a ministry to man as well as the service of God. He not only resigned his own will to the Father that he might work the work of him that sent him, but the particular work on which he was sent was that of ministering in every form of lowly and self-denying service to the children of men. When it says in Luke chapter 22 that he came to serve, it is in the context of him taking the servant's garb and washing the disciples' feet. There is no rule too low for a Christian servant. Later continues, a servant of servants was truly his office. And the service was a most exacting one, absorbing all the energies of his life and issuing in an awful death. To become the servant of God was much for one who thought not robbery to be with God. But to become the servant of man was a far deeper act of humiliation. And deepest of all was the crowning act of that service, to give his life a ransom for many. See, Christ-centered church life depends upon Christ for the power to serve, follows the example of Christ in service, and does all for the glory of Christ. My burden for all of you here is that as you elect deacons, it would be for the glory of Christ in this church. That Christ would manifest in those men you choose, that they would serve as Christ's emissaries in this church, and that Christ's kingdom would advance for the glory of his name. That's been my burden over the last couple of days. And so, so far, we've considered the pattern of this role as seen in Acts chapter 6. 
We've seen the purpose of the church implied in that role in terms of the church's function as a gospel-preaching entity that seeks to love one another and others. This morning, we saw the people involved, men certainly qualified with those who will help them. And tonight, there are two last concluding comments to make. First of all, the practice required in the role. How should deacons serve? What is their service, and how do they do it? Well, first of all, then, what do they do? What does a biblical deacon actually do? Now, here, I'm seeking to summarize. And I realize that some of this is really trying to apply the things that we have noticed. But I want to condense the thoughts into really four four simple thoughts. First of all, the deacon is to ensure that practical needs are addressed to enable the church to function. Practical needs are addressed to enable the church to function. This is the classical sort of thought of the deacon. The lights are on. The electric bill is paid. For those of you in this area, the, car, the parking lot is clear of snow. All of these things that are practiced to ensure that this building can be open for the preaching of the gospel. Because remember, what's the church all about? We preach Christ and Him crucified. And you say, well, what does a deacon do for that? They make sure that Christ is preached and Him crucified. And they make sure that the place is useful to enable that task to be accomplished. And they seek to organize the finances of the church to ensure that the minister can live off the gospel. And they seek to ensure that somebody enabled to labor in the Word and in prayer. Well, they seek to provide for literature, for outreach, and things like that. The practicalities of the church functioning as a gospel-preaching entity. Secondly, they ought to identify areas that they can assist the elders in their task preventing them from being distracted in their primary duty. And the application of this is unique and particular to a given circumstance. There are areas that you can help. Again, in some churches, those areas will be particular in ensuring the pastor is not distracted uh, with some of the practical needs of the work. There may be help, help may be given in terms of, of, of visitation of the sick and the needy. Maybe help given in administration. We all need help in administration. In terms of producing things like the, the bulletins or helping in the back desk with the, 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 the ministry on the internet, those sorts of things can be a tremendous help in the work of God. I made the point there that deacons should seek to identify those areas. What I'm suggesting here is that there's a proactiveness in their ministry. They are not, if you like, to be waiting to be asked. They should see there's a need here. What can we do to help in the work of God? Thirdly, they must be watchful for practical areas within church families and seek to meet those needs. This is Acts chapter 6, really, in fulfillment. One of the things when it comes to needs in the work of God, maybe it's not true here, but people are often slow to express their needs. 
They don't want to be a burden. Deacons have a tremendously important role in discreetly coming alongside those that they may perceive to be in need and directly asking them, can the church help you in some way? And as a church growing in maturity, you ought not to be embarrassed by that question. It's none of your business. You know, for a church to exercise a mercy ministry requires proactiveness in the church leadership, but also humility in those who need. Don't be too proud to accept help from the church. So there is this issue of watching for practical needs. Fourthly, the diaconate ought to seek to facilitate ways for the church to practice love among the brethren and in the wider community. A ministry of ideas. What can we do to serve this community? Again, that will change from culture to culture, from place to place, from time to time. But it is, in my mind, the role of the diaconate to know the area of the church and to see what ways we can do to make Christ known in our community for the honor of the Lord. So this is just a summary of kind of the four main areas of diaconal service. And before I go on, let me make one particular observation. Well, let me tell you a story first. Well, maybe not a story, but a bit of an anecdote. My, my father was raised in a denomination known as the Plymouth Brethren. I don't know if you're familiar with the Plymouth Brethren. There are certainly some in America. I'm not sure there's many of them over here. They may well be. And uh, they have a different form of church government than the Presbyterians. And one of the things, again, my dad's a very dear, godly, spiritual man, but we don't see eye to eye on church government. Well, I'm taller than he is anyway. But we don't see eye to eye on those things. They don't have elected elders. They don't have elections whereby men are uh, called and chosen by the congregation in that regard. And so a few years ago, I remember asking my dad, well, how is the church led? And he said, well, by the elders. But, so how do you know the elders? You haven't elected them. Because they do the work of the eldership. Right. So they recognized in the congregation men who were assuming the function of elders, and therefore they become the elders. Now, there's all sorts of problems with that idea. I'm not, I'm not defending it. Please understand. But I mention it to you because it makes a very important point by way of illustration. How do you know your deacons? Because they're already doing the work of the diaconate. Man, you will not become a deacon in the true sense just by receiving the votes of an election in this place. If you are not already serving as a deacon in the church, small d, not elected, not appointed, but serving in a Christ-like way in the church, then you don't suddenly change your character by beginning a title in the church. The title in many ways is a recognition of what you're already doing in the service of Christ. It should be easy, in some sense, to identify those men who are called to serve as deacons in the church. So what do they do? Well, they do the work of the diaconate. Yes, of course, 
There is any for scrutiny. But these are men who already are serving Christ in the church. What do they do? Secondly, under this idea of the practice required, how do they do this? Well, here, I want you to turn back now, please, to Second Timothy, First Timothy chapter 3. I'm preaching on Second Timothy in church on the Sunday mornings back in Malvern, and all weekend I've been trying to think it's First Timothy, First Timothy, First Timothy. I'm in such a habit of saying Second Timothy, First Timothy chapter 3. And there, of course, in verse number 8, we have the qualifications given for the diaconates. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, etc., And here, I did tell you this morning, I want to come back to some of the qualifications and really use them in order to help us assess the how do they do this. So the adverbs of the diaconates, the L-Y words that describe how they function in the church. And I have one, two, three, four of these words to draw to your attention again tonight. First of all, they do the work of the diaconate seriously. Seriously. We've mentioned already this idea of the word grave that is used in verse number 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave. Also, their wives in verse number 11, the, the, the deacons' wives also must be grave. Now, I said this morning already that the word grave has the idea of worthy of respect. But in the breadth of that understanding of that word, you get this sense of sobriety. It is the fact that they are not trivial in the work of God that then leads to the point of them earning this respect. They are sober-minded, seriously-minded individuals, not given to frivolity and carelessness in life, but rather they are given to a serious mindset. You see, in the Lord's work, there are no menial or trivial tasks. And serving the Lord's people is to be done with the utmost seriousness. Seriously. Secondly, wisely. I've mentioned already from Acts chapter 6 that those who were appointed in Acts chapter 6 were full of the Holy Ghost and of wisdom. But here we see the wisdom required in some of the terminology of the qualifications of the deacons here in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's a positive and there's a negative. I want to suggest to you the reference given here to wine in verse number 8 implies the necessity of being men of discernment. Of discernment. Whenever I was asked to come here, I was glad to receive the invitation, but in some senses there was a heaviness. When you look at the diaconate, there are some very controversial texts, way beyond the scope of the diaconate. And so you get the verse number 8, and it says, The deacons must not be given to much wine. Ay, ay, ay. Because the elders... They're not to be given to wine, verse number 3. So is this some sort of permission given to the deacons that they can have more wine than the elders? Is it a text that unties our denomination's position on total abstinence from alcohol? Is it time we close the doors and say no more free church? 
But this is about the deacons, isn't it? Well, the issue with alcohol in the Bible has some clarity in light of the words of Proverbs chapter 31. It's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Acts chapter 6. There's a necessity of judgment for the afflicted. And the recognition is that alcohol may so impair someone's discernment that they will not be just and fair in administering help to those that are afflicted. Therefore, deacons ought not to be given too much wine. Now, the wine mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3 must be seen in the context of 1 Timothy 5, verse number 23. Paul tells Timothy, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Now, there are two main views regarding that particular text. One is that Paul had some idea that alcohol itself was medicinal for Timothy's infirmities. Or perhaps more likely, it was the recognition that there was difficulty in drinking the water provided in Ephesus, and therefore Timothy is getting sick by drinking the water, and a little bit of alcohol in the water does a wonder for killing the bugs. Therefore, rather than drinking water, drink no longer water, but rather use a little wine for thy stomach's sick. Yeah, I'm not dogmatic, but that is my understanding. And in that context, therefore, there may well have been a cultural and a temporal provision given for alcohol in the times of Timothy and Paul in Ephesus, but the danger was a little bit for the stomach too much goes to the head. And therefore, there must be discernment regarding the amount of alcohol so that there can be discernment in the Lord's work. My contention tonight is not really to discuss the issue of alcohol and the Christian. You can do it some more time, brother. But tonight is to make the point that deacons must always have their heads turned on. They must be able to discern circumstances in the church and act with clarity and judgment in these things that they are wise, not drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit of God. But the wisdom that's required in these qualifications has also this idea, particularly in terms of the use of the tongue. Look at verse number 8 again. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, and then for the wives, in verse number 11, not slanderers. So one of the key things when it comes to the diaconate is that they are often made aware of private matters. If you're at the point where you cannot pay your rent and feed your children, you may be happy for a deacon to know that to help you, but you may not want that known by the entire congregation. So there is a need for privacy and wisdom and discernment. And I think what Paul is saying to Timothy is that deacons, if they're going to serve in a wise fashion, they must have given evidence of the right use of the tongue as a Christian believer. Double-tongued. 
It means what it says. It has the idea of saying one thing to someone and something different to someone else. Or it may mean to say one thing and do the opposite. Both are problematic. The key issue here in being double-tongued is a double-tongued man illustrates the fact that they are living in the fear of man. Let that sink in. That's the key here. Someone who is double-tongued is not living in the fear of God, honoring to truth. They're living in the fear of man. What is flattery? Flattery is saying something to someone that you would not say behind their back. Yep. She said it to their face, but not behind their back, because you don't believe it. That's flattery. What is gossip? Saying something about someone that you would not say to their face. Either way, you're living a life of speech that is controlled by the thoughts of others about yourself. It's living in the fear of man. And the deacon must not live in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. And the fear of man is particularly potent when it comes to the tongue. But the fear of God governing our tongue makes men upright and righteous in the church of Christ. Wisdom in discernment and in the use of the tongue. Thirdly, honestly, verse 8, not greedy of filthy lucre. I heard an account of a denomination, not in the free church, but when they were appointing deacons, they asked the deacons, have you any financial debt? And they would not allow a deacon to serve if they were in financial debt. I'm not talking about a mortgage and that sort of thing that are, that are commonplace in, in life to function. But in terms of significant debt, it was viewed as a problem given the diaconate because holding the bag brings unusual temptations. And there are stories of deacons who've had to go to court guilty of embezzling church funds. We should not think that such is not possible. And therefore, when it comes to the aconate, it is important that those who serve are not obviously guilty of the greed of filthy lucre. That they know how to live a contented life. That they understand that this world is not all about money. And so a deacon is someone who does not like money more than he ought because they have responsibilities regarding the financial affairs of the church. So we have seriously, wisely, honestly, and fourthly, reliably, reliably. I think that's the point here of the care of the home, verse 12. And also verse 11 regarding the wives, that they are faithful in all things. It's got this idea of being reliable and dependable. That you know when they've got a task to do, they will fulfill that task. My last church before I, I came to the U.S. was in an area of Northern Ireland known as Orchard County. Orchard County. Andrew knows the area well. Some of those beautiful apple orchards in Northern Ireland. Well, the church that I was pastoring at that point had one deacon. And people said, well, 
how's he doing as a deacon? He owned an apple orchard. And I said, go and see his apple orchard and you'll know how he does as a deacon. And so you drive up the road towards a church and you went through John's orchard. And you could, like, you could put a roller across the top of the apple orchard. He had them pruned in such a way, they were beautifully kept. And you know, here's a man who is absolutely reliable who does what he does to the glory of God, to the very best of his ability, and there's no shadow of doubt that he took the same attitude when he came to the work of the church. Reliable. Proven to be dependable, efficient, organized. Character is key. But in all that I've said in the last couple of days, it is clear that the deacon is one who must administer and organize and lead in those areas. And hence, they have to be proven to have the ability to organize and to administer certain functions in the church. And so chaos and disorganization is not good in the work of God, where God is not a God, a God of chaos and confusion, but of order. If all things are done decently and in order, then no less the work of the deacon. So that's a bit of an idea regarding the practice required in the work. Finally, at last, the fifth matter regarding the diaconate for this series of studies is the promise attached to the rule. Verse 13, For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus said to you. There's some really difficult texts in the context of the words towards the deacon. This is another one. But my burden, my desire, is really to encourage amongst you men a desire to serve in this capacity. I have been at pains to make the point that this is a heavy and a serious task. The work of Christ demands our full obedience but it is a work of God's that brings with it a wonderful promise. It's a twofold promise of God's blessing. First of all, they purchase to themselves a good degree. It is a good reputation. This word degree speaks of dignity and honor. I often say to young people, you ought to pursue a good name. That's not very Christian. I'm to do all things for the glory of God and not for my own name. Well, why does a wise man say, a good name is rather be chosen than great riches? You see, having a good name does not glorify yourself. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. But for the believer to have a good name, properly understood, is a good name that brings glory to their Savior. The unbeliever living a life of want and abandonment. That name is not a good name. But for the child of God to serve the church and the community and to do so by the grace of God will indeed lead to them having a good name. And that, I tell you, is something to be valued and pursued. Not for yourself, 
Let your name die, but let Christ's name be glorified. But a believer with a good name gives all the glory to their Savior. As Paul says, I am what I am. How? By the grace of God. And so it ought to be for the deacon. A faithful deacon, I've said on several occasions, is a great gift to a church. And those who serve in such a role should be respected and treated with honor. Isn't the case that we often take for granted those who serve? That ought not to be the case. A good reputation. And secondly, a great confidence. Great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. This word boldness is used of confidence or even freedom of speech when it comes to preaching and prayer. Confidence. I believe it speaks of Christian assurance that God is pleased to bless those who humble themselves in service. He is pleased to give them assurance when it comes to their standing in the faith of Christ. Perhaps the sense is that God honors those who serve with this confidence of his acceptance. See, what is it to be a Christian? It is to realize that without God you are nothing and can do nothing. As we often say, that you're a guilty rebel sinner. But when you serve as a deacon, you realize that God is enabling you to serve by his grace. You know that in of yourself... You couldn't do the function in of yourself. Our brother here and I would say, we can't preach the word. And so it comes to Sunday night and you sit down and you go, what a disaster yet again. But the bits I did do, I did for the glory of God. And I did so by the grace of God. Because left myself, I can do nothing. And it's no different for the deacon. And so when they serve faithfully, I believe there is a developing recognition that God, by His mercy, is working in His grace in their lives. And so they stand before Christ ultimately in judgment, Matthew 25. The sheep and the goats, the right and the left, the distinction is drawn. For as much as ye did it unto one of these, the least of thy brethren, ye did it unto me. And so if you like, for the deacon now, they can say that they've sought to serve Christ for Christ's glory. Sought to serve Christ's church for Christ's glory. And they've done so by the grace of God. It's great to be saved. It's great to know that you're born again of the Spirit of God, that your sins are washed away. But as God works in our hearts in the rebirth, so he also gives us a burden to serve. We're saved by grace alone, faith alone, not by works, but we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do those good works that God's appointed. And if you are called as a deacon, the good work of the deacon is something that God has appointed for you. It's an aspect of gospel grace. You could serve the church. And so I don't think it's inappropriate to say this refers to a sense of assurance. We must never, ever, ever use our works in such a way that we presume that by our works we're accepted before God. But our works do give evidence of God's work in our lives. The only hope we have of heaven is Christ's work 
He has done it all on our behalf. We will not go to heaven because we serve as deacons in the church. But we will only serve as deacons faithfully in the church by the grace of God. And so to do so is a recognition of God's work in our lives. So let me go back to the start. To go forward as a church, you must do so in conformity to the Word of God. And that's where this all started. If you're going to take steps going forward as a church here, you must do so in full obedience to the Word of God. And when you do so in the light of Acts chapter 6, may the Word of God increase. And may the number of the disciples multiply in Calgary greatly for the glory of Christ. The witness of history is plain. A congregation without biblically functioning deacons is impoverished. But a congregation with them is incalculably rich. May God be pleased to bless his word to your hearts in this congregation. To the glory of his precious name. Let's all pray, please. Let's all pray. Seeking again the face of our God. Eternal God, we thank you for your work in and through Christ Jesus. That he came to give his life as a servant, as a deacon. To give his life a ransom for many. And we pray, O God, that in your will, the risen and ascended Christ would raise up men in this place to serve as deacons in Christ's church. We pray, O God, that in Christ's mercy, those whom Christ has saved will be equipped to serve in that capacity. As our brother prayed this morning, we can't say, who is sufficient for these things? But of course, our sufficiencies of God. So bless the men. Give help to the entire congregation as they would consider uh, the work of God here and the necessity of this office. And we do earnestly pray that through the appointment of deacons, that the man of God would know the ability to labor in the unction of the Spirit of God, laboring in the Word and in prayer. And in so doing, the Word of God would increase. Sinners would be converted. And the name of our God glorified and exalted. Help us all to consider these things carefully. May the Word of God that has been sown in the hearts, may it bring forth much good fruit. Apply it as you see fit. And we will seek to give thee all the honor and all of the glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.